Today, we're going to be reading from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 9, starting in verse 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Hear the word of the Lord. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of, because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This is the word of the Lord. So over the last year, as you know, if you've been with us, we've been reading through the Bible together as a congregation, and then we pause each Sunday to consider one of the passages, not all of them, but one of the passages that we read together this week. And we hold it up to the light, and we let the facets dazzle us. And so today, we're coming to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians and his admonition for the people in Corinth to be generous, and specifically in this context, to be generous with their money. Now, if you read the letter, you'll remember the story. I, originally, I was assigned chapters 8 and 9, but I couldn't do it all. So just it, hopefully you read it. You know the larger context of what I'm talking about. The saints who are in Jerusalem, Christians in Jerusalem, were suffering poverty, and they needed help from other Christians in the area. And so the Christians who were in Macedonia, we're, we're in Corinth in this letter, but the Christians who were in Macedonia, who were also very impoverished, they gave beyond their means to help their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And Paul has arranged for the Corinthians, who were very wealthy, to give their money as well in order to help the cause. And so here we're going to see how Paul reasons with these Christians and by extension to overflow, but by extension to us, to overflow in generosity to those in need. Now, I should probably acknowledge <laughs> right here at the beginning uh, that there's a kind of like stereotypical opinion of the church like in the outside world, outside of these walls, and it's basically this. All the preachers ever talk about is money. And that's not a favorable assessment. People aren't like, oh, I'm so glad you're helping me and I appreciate, no, no, it's not, it's not favorable. Some people outside the church, for whatever reason, they finally do what they've been meaning to do for years. They get themselves out of bed on a Sunday morning. They come down to church to see what it's all about and horror of horrors. 
The preacher is talking about money. Now, behind this complaint, there are a couple of assumptions holding it up. And let me just answer them before we get into this text. First assumption, the church is only interested in getting money out of me. And honestly, I mean, I can't speak for every other church. I can only speak for our church. It's true that we are a voluntary society that does require the generosity and the financial gifts of our members in order to function, right? That, that's true. But if you've been around here for more than five minutes, you'll know that we are far more interested in other things besides your money. Our desire is that everyone who joins themselves to this church to grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ it's our desire that they know what it means to be loved, to be cared for, to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And every part of a person's life in this culture is, we, we want every part of a person's life to be touched by the grace of Jesus Christ. And look, money is part of that. Okay, and so we want the grace of Christ to touch that as well and to transform that area of our lives as well. Furthermore, Christ taught us, did he not, that where our treasure is, there is our heart. So we're only interested in talking about money insofar as those little green pieces of paper have the power to direct our hearts. Okay, that's the first assumption. Second assumption is that the preacher who preaches about money is only doing so in order to enrich himself at the expense of the congregation. And unfortunately, you know, I mean, there is some truth to that in other places. Um, we hear, you know, preachers flying private jets, luxuriating in their urban mansions, and they pressure those in their congregation to give to those efforts with unbiblical promises that if they do, they too can be this wealthy. And I just need you to know, like right off the bat, that kind of preaching is patently unbiblical. And if that's an objection in anybody's heart today who is sitting here, let me just assuage your angst. Like, especially with regards to me, I have nothing to gain by encouraging you to be generous today. I do not earn my living by working in this church. I'm just a preacher trying to come to terms with the Bible and try to bring you guys along with me. So, you know, be generous or don't. It doesn't matter to my financial situation. I'm just one of you. But to be clear, if Matt was up here preaching, who does earn his living, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm trying to say something nice about him. Um, <laughs> I know you're not used to that, but I'm <laughs> if, if Matt was up here and he does earn his living by this church, this assumption would still be false because he'd be preaching the text just like I am. We're a people of the book, and sometimes the book wants to teach us about generosity, and our commitment is to teach the full counsel of God. Okay, now, lengthy introduction out of the way. Let's get to the text, and in order to understand it, we're going to break it down into three headings. Number one, God's generosity. Number two, our generosity. And then number three, the reward of our generosity. 
Simple, God's generosity, our generosity, and the reward. Okay, number one, God's generosity, and we're going to start in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 9. It says this, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Okay, now, before we get into this verse, it's important to understand what condition it's addressing within us, right? There, there's, the, the scripture is here to teach us, which means we need to be taught. There are some malformed things within us that need shaping. And so what's the condition within us that this is addressing? It's this, left to ourselves, we believe that the world or God, or the universe, or however you want to put it, is cold, angular, tight-fisted, inhospitable, and uncharitable. Without being taught otherwise, we will assess life in this world, not unlike Thomas Hobbes and the Leviathan, you know, the great Enlightenment thinker. He said that life, the life of man is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish and short. <laughs> Welcome to church. This is, but left to ourselves, this is what we will believe about life, about our place in the world. We're here in this inhospitable environment for 70 years or by reason of strength, 80, and we're just scratching out an existence with no help from anyone. But Paul, in this verse, takes that assumption and flips it on its head. He says, actually, we live in a world not of scarcity, but in a world of abundance. God is able, he says in this verse, to make all grace abound to you. He bestows all sufficiency in all things, in all times. So, like, so far from eking out like this mere, brutish, nasty, short existence. We live and we move, Paul says, and we have our being in a world that is saturated and overflowing with the generosity and the abundance of God, which spills over from his cup down to all of us. And the thing is, like, I know we know this, but we need to be reminded of it. it. It can be almost a revelation to us because we're so used to this abundance and this generosity, we forget to remember how unexpected and magnificent it actually is. Like every morning, the sun rises. It gives us its light and life, and that is a gift. Like when was the last time any of us contributed to that? Like. We can't, not one iota of effort will keep the sun from rising or cause it to rise. God sends the rains in, in their seasons, in order to stimulate the soil, produce harvests. God has given us soil, for crying out loud, to plant our food and animals to fill our bellies like he feeds us. Furthermore, God has fed us by calling bakers into his service. He has clothed us by calling textile workers into his service. He wakes us up every morning, makes our lungs to breathe, our hearts to beat so that our bodies can be productive. And none of this 
hear me, none of this we have earned. None of this should be expected. All of it is a gift overflowing from the generosity of God to the impoverished human race. God has made his abundance overflow and abound in all things at all times and in all places, Paul teaches us. The world, listen, the world in which you woke up this morning is a world bursting with the generosity of God. Now, in saying all of this, I can imagine that, you know, if you're a Christian, you're like, yeah, yes, that's right, amen. But some of us are probably stuck between two responses to that teaching. At the same time that you want to rise up and say, yes, yes, amen, you have a check inside of you. Like, yes, the scripture teaches that the world in which we live is shot through with the abundance and generosity of God, and we Christians believe that in some ethereal manner that must be true. But we also have the data which seems to contradict that in overwhelming abundance. Like, we, we didn't come to believe that life is solitary, nasty, brutish, short, for no reason, right? We're not irrational people. And that little objector within each of us has a point. Yeah, the rains do come, but sometimes they don't, and we're left with a drought for years. Or sometimes they arrive in force and flood out whole towns. Yes, God has given us the soil in which to plant, but the harvests are so unequally distributed throughout the world, some of us sit upon a mountain of food, glutting ourselves and throwing away the scraps, while others subsist on the bare crumbs that fall from our table. Yes, God has given us life and breath and health, but what about all the sickness and the suffering which abounds in our communities and throughout the world? Yes, the Bible teaches this world overflows with the generosity of God. But it is very hard to believe when we look around honestly and take stock. And that is a very good objection. But if that lives within any of us, that's because we have forgotten the most stunning act of generosity which has come from the hand of God. Not only does he cause the sun to rise every morning, not only does he send the rain in its season, not only does he clothe us and feed us and wake us up in the morning with the gift of another day, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to become one of us to live among us. And this, my friends, is the most magnificent gift of all. Jesus Christ, though he was worth the praise of 10,000 angels for eternity, emptied himself and became as nothing. He himself was a man without a home. He was poor. He lived on the scraps of humanity. And when he came to the end of his life, it was truly brutish, nasty, and solitary. He was brutalized within an inch of his life. He was stripped naked and bereft of all of his dignity. He longed for a drop of water just to cool his tongue 
and instead they gave him sour wine. And when his time drew near, he called out for the comfort of his father upon the cross and found that he was utterly alone. And at that, he gave up his spirit and died. And do you know why? Let me remind you why he did that. He did it for you as a gift of his grace. The blood that he spilled upon the cross was the blood of atonement so that your sins and mine could be forgiven in the sight of God and so that you and I could be members of his family and even more than that, inheritors of the kingdom of God. We have become heirs of his throne. We've been clothed in the garments of his righteousness. And through Christ's sacrifice, we have become the beloved of God. So, however powerful that objection is within you, it withers in the face of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God is not aloof to our suffering. He proved that once and for all by dwelling among us and taking up our suffering upon his shoulders. In the person of Jesus Christ, he entered our suffering. He entered our want. He entered our need, and he bore it on his shoulders to the hill of Calvary and gave his life so that you and I would never question the generosity and goodness of God. All is grace. You must believe that. All is grace. All is gift. All is generosity. This morning, you woke up into a world in which Jesus Christ, the righteous, suffered and died and was resurrected. And that means, if you're a Christian, you woke up into a world filled with love and hope and peace. So that's the world which we inhabit. It's not brutish and inhospitable, but a world overflowing with the generosity of God. And that is the foundation for everything that's about to come next. Like, if we don't believe that, if we don't believe the generosity of God, the grace of God, then any invitation toward generosity on our part will feel like nothing but a burdensome task, like someone's trying to take something from us. But if we've established anything with this one verse is that God does not desire to take from you. He desires to give to you. Let that in. Full stop. No qualification. He says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And since we who believe in Christ have been remade into his image, then our generosity must take the shape of his generosity. And that brings us to our second point, our generosity. So with the abundant generosity of God in view, Paul lays down a principle that we see in verse 6. He says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, that's not hard to understand, right? I mean, if a farmer stands in his field and casts only a few seeds out, 
He, he has no right to expect an abundant harvest to come back. If he casts out an abundance of seeds, the crop will be bountiful. No farmer expects a bountiful crop by sowing a pittance of seeds. Now, we're going to get to the harvest later. We talk about that in the next section. But for now, it's enough to know that by sowing seeds, which is to say conforming to a posture of generosity with our money, remember, in this context, Paul is talking about money, right? There, there's other contexts for generosity in the New Testament, but here he's definitely talking about money. Conforming to the posture of generosity with our money, Paul says, we should expect a reward. Now again, that's beyond all we should expect. It's God who has placed the seed in our hands, and by all measures, the entire harvest ought to belong to him. That he has given us any share in the reaping is astonishing. Regardless, the principle is this. If you are minimally generous with your money, you will also reap minimal rewards. If you are like God, on the other hand, in whose image you're made, who does nothing but give, then the harvest will be multiplied 30, 60, 100-fold. And the truth is, I don't know of a single Christian who does not want this for themselves. Like we know, at least by instinct, how good God has been to us, how he has lavished his generosity upon us. And so when an occasion comes for us to be generous, we ought to just do it, and yet we hesitate. We're tempted to believe that we're sort of like taxpayers in the kingdom of God. Like we know what it means to pay taxes, those of us who are adults. The Constitution has, by law, established that a certain percentage of our income will go towards the operation of the government. And we submit to this law, grudgingly. I don't know of anybody who's excited about it, but we do it. We're honest about it. We make our returns faithfully. But the one thing we dread is a rise in the tax code because then there will be less for us to live on. And when it comes to our money, we bring the same conviction into the kingdom of God. We believe God to be a benevolent king. And we even believe that all that we have has been given to us by him. And so we faithfully pay our taxes. And for a lot of us who grew up in the church, we've been told that the tax rate is 10%. It's a tithe. And, you know parenthetical moment here. A tithe is a very curious thing um, because, you know, th this comes to us not from the New Testament, from the Old Testament, um, which doesn't invalidate it, just to be clear. But what biblical scholars have been trying to show us for years is that there were actually several tithes for which the Jews were responsible, and that if you added them all up, it amounts to like 30% of a person's income. 30%. Y'all don't like where I'm going with this, do you? <laughs> 30. <laughs> like if we, were, if we weren't all sitting down right now, we would sit down right now. But I suppose, um, but suppose I was up here um, demonstrating to you, like from the Bible, that the Lord required you to give 30% of your income into those little offering boxes on the, the wall there. 
my guess is you would react like me. I wouldn't outwardly rebel. I wouldn't stand up and shake my fist at the man. But inwardly, I'd be furious. That tax is too high. How can I live on 70%? Like, I've adjusted my life so that 10% still feels like a sacrifice, but I'm able to do it, and I've kind of grown used to it. 20% more would ruin me and my family. How, How could God expect that of me? See, that's the posture of a taxpayer. not a son or daughter of God. We really start to believe that while a certain percentage of our income belongs to God, there is a much larger percentage that belongs to us and is governed by the laws of our own needs. And that is not what the Bible teaches us. We see what a true child of God looks like in the person of Jesus Christ. He gave himself completely, right? In the life of Jesus Christ, there was no such thing as the part that belongs to me and the part that belongs to God. Christ poured out everything he had upon the altar in his service to the Father. So God does not just want part of you. And by extension, part of your money. He wants it all, not because he is cruel, but because he is love and must bless. And he cannot bless unless he has you. So the one who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. The one who sows abundantly will reap abundantly. Now, what does that mean in practice? Paul goes on. The beginning of verse 7, he says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Neither Jesus nor Paul nor any other apostle in the, in the New Testament teaches us to give 10% of our income to the church or otherwise. It's not a bad thing. I'm not saying you shouldn't. Maybe it's a helpful guideline, whatever. But this is, this is not like, thus saith the Lord, okay? Just to be clear. Instead, the matter is left to the conscience of the individual believer. Remember, Matt taught us last week about the conscience. And one of the very good things he said is that the conscience isn't infallible. It must be taught by the Scriptures. It must be in conformity with what is written, And that's what I've been laboring to do this whole time that I've been up here by dwelling on the generosity of God. I've been trying to remind you that you've been given everything by God. And so that when the occasion does come to give, your conscience will remember how much you have received. You must decide, he says, in your heart how much you will give. Some are able to give more. Some are able to give less. But in the matter of giving in the matter of generosity, ultimately, this is between you and God. This is what Paul is teaching us. And, and, if, you're, and if your heart is flooded with the generosity of God, you, you become like the, the poor woman that Jesus praised. Can you imagine? 
He, she didn't even know he was watching him at the temple treasury. She puts in her two little coins and, and he says, oh, look at this woman. She has given more than anyone. Even the wealthy who have put large sums in because she gave all that she had to live on. That, that kind of, she didn't know. That kind of generosity Think of this, that kind of generosity, that kind of giving astonishes Jesus Christ so much so that her story is now read all over the world for thousands of years. It was was astonishing. So, The matter is between you and God. But then Paul goes on to show what the character of this giving ought to be. He says in the second half of verse 7, he says, not reluctantly. You don't give reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, we do not give as the taxpayer gives. Reluctantly, under compulsion. But as sons and daughters of God, made in the image of generosity himself. Like if we are thinking rightly, if we are being formed into the image of Christ, then giving ourselves and our money will result in gladness of heart, Paul says. Why? Because we are behaving in the same manner that brings God joy. We give and we give and we give. Now, that ought to be incentive enough. Like, what else would we need to be generous? But Paul goes even further and promises us rewards for our generosity. So let's go to that. The reward of our generosity, number three. Now, um, in light of everything I've been saying, it almost feels indecent to talk about rewards for generosity. Like, shouldn't we just give because it's the right thing to do? Well, whether that's the case or not, God has seen fit to promise us a reward for our giving, and we see that in verse 10. He says, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Okay. Now we return to the concept of the harvest. God will multiply the seed in your hands so that you will have more to sow than you could possibly imagine. And the return, Paul says, is the harvest of your righteousness. Now, righteousness in this context, in this context, it's not like um, it's not like the righteousness that, uh, that pardons us on the day of judgment. It's not that kind of righteousness. It's, it's, a right, it's a right act. It's behaving properly. And so righteousness in this context refers to the act of giving money. God will increase the harvest of the righteous act that you performed in sowing generously. Okay, so what is the harvest? What should we expect? Well, let me begin by telling you what we should not expect. It is not referring to more money. (laughs) 
Amen? <laughs> this is not referring to more money. That is a purely anti-scriptural teaching that is far more prevalent in the church than it ought to be. Let me be clear. The kingdom of God is not a mutual fund into which we invest our money with the guarantee of money in return. Paul does not teach us that we are venture capitalists betting on a sure return. But there are unbiblical preachers out there who will try to get you to believe this. They tell you that if you're struggling financially, pinched in your finances, then you must give what little money you do have and God will bless your faith with more money because what could require more faith than giving money that you don't have? But they don't just want you to give it anywhere. Like they're not just saying, just give it to, no, give it to us. That's what they're saying. Give it to me because let's be honest, private jets don't pay for themselves, you know? This is unbiblical. It's patently manipulative and it is evil. I just need to be clear about that. Now to be clear, if God wants to give you more money as a result of you giving your money away, he can certainly do that. That is, that is all up to him. But that is not the promise. That is not the reward that he gives to us. Okay, so if the harvest isn't more money, then what is the reward of our generosity? Well, we see it in chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. He says, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Okay, I hope you heard it. The reward of our generosity is that for those who are on the receiving end of it, they erupt into thanksgiving to God. Let me say that again. The reward for our generosity, the promised reward, God can give us any kind of reward, but the promised reward is thanksgiving to God for the ones who are the recipients of our generosity. Like, you understand, like, have you ever been on the receiving end of somebody else's generosity? You give thanks. Oh, thanks be to God for his gift. Like that's, and Paul is saying, that's the reward. That's really it. And if I'm let down by that reward, it's only because I'm not thinking about thanksgiving properly. So let's go back to the beginning. God is a being who is defined by his generosity. All is grace, yes? All is gift. What, what do we have that we have not received? There's nothing that we possess, whether houses or jobs or children or a place at the table of God to which we can point and say, this is mine. I earned this. It belongs to me. No, it is a gift of God's unfathomable grace. But maybe someone says, I did earn these things. I worked for them. And who gave you the energy to work? 
Who gave you the ingenuity to solve problems? Who gave you the capacity to create? All is grace. All is a gift of the generosity of God. And if that is true, then the entirety of our lives ought to be summed up with one word, namely, thanksgiving. Our whole lives are defined by the giving of thanks because our whole lives are the result of 10,000 gifts coming down from the Father who delights to give to us. In fact, the giving of thanks in this life is only a taste of what will stretch on for eternity in the kingdom of God. If you remember, John tells us in Revelation chapter 7 that in the future, we all, the congregation of God, shall join the elders surrounding the throne of God to give thanks to the Lamb of God, starting in verse 9. He says, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped. God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And so when, when Paul teaches us that we must give, our reward is going to be that those to whom we give will erupt in thanksgiving to God. And he is trying to tell us that our reward is what all of us who love Jesus long for more than anything, that Christ would be recognized as the generous one that he is and worship be given to him according to his generosity. What more could we want than that? Now listen, I... I'm at the end here, and I don't, I don't have a pitch for you. There's no, there's no cause to give to. I'm not rallying the troops here. All I'm trying to do is to convince you that by giving, you will receive that for which your heart longs, that Jesus Christ may be worshiped with glad hearts. So this week and all the weeks following it, as God invites you to be generous with your money, remember, we are not taxpayers. We are sons and daughters of the generous one. And so give as your Father has given to you. And we come to this table just like we do every week. And there is no greater symbol of the generosity of God than the table that sits in our midst. The body and blood of Jesus, which is what the, the bread and the cup represent, are nothing more than the staggering generosity of God on your behalf. And so, if you want to know what grace tastes like, then come to this table and feast. Let us pray.
Our Father in heaven, all I have tried to do is to open your word and deliver to your people that which you have said. And I hope, Father, and I pray that you would show us the great generosity that you have bestowed upon us. We are forgetful people, and we are in great need of your uh, reminding grace. So would you grant us that, so that we can in all things give as generously as you've given to us. And we love you, and pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you are a Christian, this meal is for you. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ.